0: Merry Christmas and Happy Lord's Day. It is good to be face to face before the Lord together in worship this morning. We're going to be in Matthew chapter 1, Matthew chapter 1 this morning, and we will cover the first 17 verses, and then this evening we will look at verses 18 through 25 to the end of the chapter. Now is an opportunity for you to participate in the sermon, and to be honest, how many of you during this Christmas season, have given any time or attention to reading Matthew's genealogy here in these 17 verses. Just raise your hand if you read through. Come on. All right, one. Nobody else brave. That's okay, I get it. I'm actually surprised you were that honest. I understand that we can come to portions of scripture like this where name after name, always love in the, in the King James Version, so-and-so begat, so-and-so begat, so-and-so begat, and we think, man, this is so boring. If one tried to write like a normal book and begin it this way, it would never get published. And so we think of these sections as easily skippable and boring. And I want to encourage you this morning by telling you this, these sections are not boring. They're not skippable. In fact, they are essential. One of the applications today, right now in the introduction, is this, read genealogies. There's gold in these hills if you know how to look. One of the things you can do to make these portions of Scripture beneficial is by picking out names and then going and searching out their stories in Scripture. But perhaps most important, and this is a good practice anywhere in the Bible, is to ask this question. Why did the author say this, and why did he say it now? What is this doing here? What is this genealogy doing here at the front end of Matthew's Gospel. All of it is working to the end of teaching us that Jesus is the forever king who brings the blessing of Abraham to all nations. That's the the main idea here. That's how the genealogy is functioning. But, But I do want you to think about this later as you go out through your Bible reading throughout the rest of the year and into the next year. Think about asking this question, what is it doing here? There's not any word of the Bible that is just a throwaway. Writing things down used to be very hard. You know, they couldn't just open their laptops, scroll out a few words on Microsoft Word and publish it to the internet. So, every stroke of the pen is purposeful. Matthew wants us to see just how important Jesus of Nazareth is in all of history. and so let's You know, apply, let's respond to that point of application together this morning and read this genealogy. Would you stand with me in the honor of reading God's holy and perfect word? Matthew chapter 1, starting with verse 1. The book of the genealogy of Jesus Christ, the son of David, the son of Abraham, the king, and David was the father of Solomon by the wife of Uriah, And Solomon the father of Rehoboam and Rehoboam the father of Abijah and Abijah the father of Asaph and Asaph the father of Jehoshaphat and Jehoshaphat the father of Joram and Joram the father of Uzziah and Uzziah the father of Jotham and Jotham the father of Ahaz and Ahaz the father of Hezekiah and Hezekiah the father of Manasseh and Manasseh the father of Amos and Amos the father of Josiah and Josiah the father of Jeconiah and his brothers at the time of the deportation to Babylon. And after the deportation to Babylon, Jeconiah, Jeconiah again, we're supposed to count his name twice. That'll be important. Later. Jeconiah was the father of Shealtiel, and Shealtiel the father of Zerubbabel, and Zerubbabel the father of Abiud, and Abiud the father of Eliakim, and Eliakim the father of Azor, and Azor the father of Zadok, and Zadok the father of Akim, and Akim the father of Iliud, and Iliud the father of Eleazar, and Eleazar the father of Mathan, and Mathan the father of Jacob, and Jacob the father of Joseph, the husband of Mary, of whom Jesus was born who is called Christ, so all the generations, from Abraham to David, were 14 generations. And from David to the deportation to Babylon, 14 generations. And from the deportation to Babylon to the Christ, 14 generations. This is the word of the Lord. May he carve its eternal truth on our hearts and let us pray together this morning. O source of all good, what shall we render to you for the gift of gifts? Your own dear Son, begotten, not created. Our Redeemer, proxy, surety, substitute. His self-emptying, incomprehensible. His infinity of love, beyond the heart's grasp. Herein is wonder of wonders. He came below to raise us above He was born like us, so we might become like him. Herein is love. When we cannot rise to him, he draws us near on wings of grace to raise us to himself. Herein is power. When deity and humanity were infinitely apart, he united them indissolubly indissolubly together in unity. The uncreated. Bonded to the created. Herein is wisdom. When I was undone, with no will to return to him, and no intellect to devise recovery, he came, God incarnate, to save us to the uttermost, as man to die our death, to shed satisfying blood in the place of his people, to work out a perfect righteousness. For all who believe, O God, take us in spirit to the watchful shepherds and enlarge our minds. Let us hear good tidings of great joy, and as we hear, give us belief. Lead us to rejoicing before you with praise and adoration. May our consciences be bathed in an ocean of repose, our eyes lifted up to you, our reconciled Father. Place us together with the ox, donkey, camel, and goat to look with them upon our Redeemer's face and in him account ourselves delivered from sin. Let us with Simeon clasp the newborn child to our hearts. Embrace him with undying faith, exalting that he is ours and we are his. In Christ thou has given us so much that heaven can give no more. We pray these things in Jesus name. Amen. Before we walk into verse one of chapter one of Matthew's gospel I think it's important that we weight ourselves with the same expectations that the original audience had. Remember God has not spoken to his people in almost 400 years. And the Hebrew Bible ends by walking us through Israel's history in the book of Chronicles. From the very beginning to the glory days, unto the exile and captivity. And yet at the end of Chronicles there is hope sprinkled in. Such that God's people are to wait for God's promise to be fulfilled. They are waiting for the Messiah King to come. And so Jesus has come. Word has traveled in the ancient world, and yet many still don't know what to think. Enter Matthew's gospel, and the words of verse 1 fall like an anvil onto those who are still waiting in eager expectation and hope. God's promises, though delayed, have been kept. Waiting was not in vain. I think we just inherently have a hard time with any sort of waiting, a hard time relating to this. I know I do. I don't even wait for Christmas anymore. During the year, I have Christmas many times over every time I visit Amazon. A book I want, a gift I need, it's at my door in two days. And that sometimes seems a little long. I even, you know, if I want to get Chelsea something, I'll order it and I give it to her. Merry Christmas! She's like, it's August. I don't like to wait. I even try to not wait in any lines. It would be a great rule to actually live by. And so I think it's really hard for us to think about what it would be like to corporately wait as families year after year, century after century, for the Messiah to come. I do think probably, though, those who were waiting for Christ even became a little bit discouraged. Maybe said to themselves, you know, God has promised us a king, but here we are, no land, no king. It's been 400 years. Maybe God will not keep his word. And here it is. The King has come. I think this is a good lesson for us because even though we don't often think about it, we are ourselves a people who are waiting. We who have trusted in Christ are waiting for His return. We should wait faithfully, patiently, not with doubts. We should wait faithfully knowing that God always keeps His word. That though his promises may be delayed, they always are fulfilled. We want to wait with patience, remembering that God operates according to his calendar, not ours. He's on his timetable, not yours. And that applies to all sorts of things in life. God is always working out his will in the world and we do well to remember it. We do well to remember that God has been faithful over and over again, that he has never been unfaithful to any one of us for any amount of time. Even when we might not understand our situation or our circumstances, we know God's character well enough to know that if there was anywhere better for us to be, his divine love would put us there. He's after our good. He works out his will in the world. He keeps his promises. And that's what Matthew wants us to see from the jump. That in the grand scheme of things, God keeps his promises. And that the destiny of all the scriptures is met... ...in the person of Jesus Christ. Look at verse 1, what Matthew is claiming. The book of the genealogy of Jesus Christ, the son of David, the son of Abraham. Matthew is putting some teeth in his argument that Jesus is the Messiah... He's going to argue in three ways, there are three things we need to see just in verse one and they're filled out not just in this genealogy, but throughout Matthew's whole gospel. The first one is a little bit subtle to us. See these first few words, uh, the book of the genealogy of Jesus Christ are meant to teach us that Jesus brings a new beginning, a new creation to humanity. Why do I say that? Why do I say Jesus is a new beginning? Well, because the words that Matthew opens his gospel with in Greek deliberately mirror early portions of Genesis when new creation is being wrought. You can tell this. You know a little bit more Greek. You'll know it by ear, right? The the first two words of Matthew's gospel are uh, biblos, book, Bible, Bible, Gennesios. You hear that? You hear it here? Gennesios comes from uh, uh, Genesis. And so what Matthew is doing, just with the first two words of his gospel, is very similar to what John does. In the beginning was the Word. Matthew wants us to recognize that his biography of Jesus is not just about Jesus. It's about a new beginning for the whole world. And so he titles his book after the first book of the Bible, Genesis of Jesus Christ. And it's interesting that Genesis is best known for God's act of creation. And when we come out of the other side of the Gospels, we recognize that God is again creating life where there was not life. In all those, he gives new hearts and calls unto himself. Matthew wants us to know that this is a book of new beginnings, a new Genesis, and that Jesus is the new Adam. Like Adam, he is not yet tainted by sin. But unlike Adam, he will resist temptation, fulfill his role as king. And crush the head of the serpent. The first Adam rebelled against God and brought sin into the world. The second submits himself to God perfectly and defeats sin and death by way of his crucifixion and resurrection. He gives new life and the promise of future physical resurrection to all who come to him in faith. Jesus is the one who brings a new beginning and new life. Paul writes in 1 Corinthians 15 verse 21, for since death came through a man, the resurrection of the dead also comes through a man. For just as in Adam all will die so also in Christ all will be made alive. The readers of Matthew's gospel would have recognized Matthew's claim that God was starting something new in Jesus Christ. They would understand that Jesus is the fulcrum upon which history rotates. Not only is Jesus a new beginning, he's a new beginning because of who he is He's the king. He's the Christ who was promised the Son of David, the son of Abraham. That's the second thing. So Jesus is a new beginning. Here's the second thing. Jesus is the promised son of David. It's important to recognize here Christ is not a last name. right? There wasn't the Joseph Christ and Mary Christ and Jesus Christ and little James and Johnny Christ, his brothers. They didn't have Christ on their welcome mat when you came to their house. His wife I mean Mary didn't wear little C's on her earrings. That Christ is not a name, it's a title that means king, Messiah, chosen one, anointed one. Matthew wants us to recognize Jesus as bringing a new beginning as God's king, as God's chosen one, His anointed. Why, though? Should we recognize Jesus as the forever Davidic king? Matthew argues that Jesus has the right lineage and presents us with Jesus' resume. That might sound a little odd to you. You know, in our day, when we want to show that we are qualified for something, we get our resume out, we send it out, and we show everybody our best qualifications, the sort of work that we've done. And we, really, anything that makes us look impressive, we want to put before those that we are trying to prove our qualifications to. Very similarly, in the ancient world, you would need to prove that you were qualified for different tasks or different responsibilities. But the way you did that was not through your own personal resume, but through your lineage. It mattered more, not what you knew, this maybe is similar to today, but who you knew and who your daddy was. That would commend you for particular positions or tasks. And so Matthew lays out Jesus's lineage in his resume to say Jesus is qualified. And funny thing, just like you might tinker with your resume a little bit to make yourself look more impressive, so too did people in the first century tinker with their family trees. It was that uncle that might need to be left out. Just like you might leave out your stint as a sign flipper on the side of the road. Or that time you were the Chick-fil-A cow. It doesn't seem relevant. They, they would do the same thing. And Matthew has done the same thing here. His purpose of outlining Jesus' family tree in Jesus's resume, isn't to give every name of every person that Jesus descends from, but to show us that Jesus is the legal, royal descendant of King David and thus qualified to be Christ. This is really important or you're going to get all twisted up in your Bible reading, especially when you compare Matthew's genealogy to Luke's. The genealogy is not about chronological precision, but theological significance. You understand? This genealogy is not about chronological precision or naming every name of every person that Jesus descends from. It is about making a theological argument. And so the genealogy, it has purposeful and obvious omissions. I mean, Matthew even intentionally leaves out kings. And presents Israel's genealogy to us in three parts. Mostly through patriarchs, kings, and then those who would have been in David's line as captives. You can can see Israel's history. Think of it this way. So, Abraham to David is the season of the patriarchs. Then you have David to the Babylonian exile. This is the time of the kings. And then from the exile, which you can see in verse 11, starts with Jeconiah, goes through Jesus. This is where God's people are captives. Captives whom Jesus will eventually set free. Matthew wants us to see Israel's history in the genealogy. He wants us to see Jesus' pedigree in the genealogy. And so he makes obvious and purposeful omissions. He's not made a mistake. He's doing what he's doing on purpose. He leaves out kings Any Israelite worth his salt would recognize that Matthew has left out some kings. He's not trying to pull the wool over anyone's eyes. The Israelites would have known kings, much like we know presidents. Actually, that's not a great example. Nobody like Who's the 12th president of the United States? See, nobody knows. Nobody knows. Just lost to history. They would have known their kings, though. They've been able to do their research. Matthew, you left this person out. No, he is making an argument. And he even tells us as much in verse 17. He says, this is what I'm doing in my genealogy. These are all the generations from Abraham to David, that's your patriarchs, 14. From David to the exile, that's 14. And from the deportation to Babylon to Christ, this is what I've called captives, 14 generations. And so you do go, Matthew, why this focus on the number 14? It's really interesting. I think one of the reasons is because Jewish folks used to play word games and number games a lot like we do. Maybe their version of Sudoku was called uh, Geometria, if I'm pronouncing it right. I'm not great at pronunciation. Uh, But in Geometria, what you would do is a letter would correspond to a number. So if in English it would be like A is the number one, B is the number two, C is the number three. You get it? So, in the Hebrew alphabet, theirs works a similar way. It's Aleph, Bet, vet, Gimel, Dalet, hey, right? So, so Aleph, Bet, g- Gimel, dalit. with me? Dalit is the fourth letter of the Hebrew alphabet. And so, it gets the number four. V, or Vav, is the sixth letter of the Hebrew alphabet. And so what they would do is they would come up with numerical values of someone's name. Now in Hebrew, especially the original, there were no vowels. In fact, when you read it now, biblical Hebrew, they've added in these vowel pointers. They did it way back then, we didn't do it. But they added in vowel pointers so you would know how to pronounce the word. And so how they would calculate the numerical value of someone's name is by adding up the consonants in their name. So you would go, D, all right, that's four. V, that's six. D, that's another six. Who knows how much that is? Fourteen. Sixteen, get out of here. That's fourteen. Actually, I heard somebody say, you know, you can see that David's name, it's DVD, and the Bible is prophesying the advent of DVDs. I thought that was funny, but it's built around his name being 14 is the numerical value of David's name, and so now we have 14 generations, right, 14, 14, this is what people did before the internet, okay, some of you are like, wow, this is, so you have 14 generations, and do you know what else is unique about this, guess whose name is the 14th on the list, it's David's. What else, if we're looking at this genealogy, is unique about David in verse six in particular? Matthew lists a whole lot of kings, but he only calls one of them king. And it's David. The genealogy is about Jesus' pedigree as the son of David. And so you can see he's saying with his three sets of 14, David, David, David. Jesus is the son of David. It's like he's setting off an alarm saying, king, 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 the king is here. The one you have waited on has entered into reality. And he's going to tell us by way of a virgin birth. By way of the Holy Spirit. And his name is Jesus because he's going to save his people from their sins. He is the king who is promised. He is the son of David. He's qualified to sit the throne. These are big arguments. And just a little bit of time. Jesus is a new beginning. Jesus is the son of David. And lastly, he's arguing that Jesus is the son of Abraham. He's the son of Abraham. I think most of us remember one of the many things that was significant about Abraham is that he bore the promises of God. Remember, God promised him that his offspring would bless the nations many times. One of the places he reiterates this promise is in Genesis chapter 22 in verse 17. God says, I will surely bless you. I will surely multiply your offspring as the stars of heaven and as the sand that is on the seashore. And your offspring shall possess the gate of his enemies. And in your offspring shall all the nations of the earth be blessed because you have obeyed my voice. So God promises Abraham, your offspring is going to bring blessing to all nations. I think it's fair for us to ask the question, how? How? But Well, Paul explains it to us in Galatians 3.16. Now the promises were spoken to Abraham and to his seed, that's offspring. He does not say, and to seeds, as though referring to many, but referring to one, and to your seed, who is Christ. You see, the offspring of Abraham that brings blessing to the nations is singular. It is the man, Jesus Christ. Paul goes on and elaborates. Galatians 3, 6-9. through 9, Just as Abraham believed God and it was credited to him for righteousness, then understand that those who have faith are Abraham's sons. Now the scripture saw in advance that God would justify the Gentiles by faith and told the good news ahead of time to Abraham saying, all nations will be blessed through you. So those who have faith are blessed with Abraham who had faith. See, Paul argues that righteousness and the enjoyment of the blessing of God comes as a consequence of having faith in God's promises. Those who are true children of Abraham are those who have faith. The promises made to Abraham of blessing find reality in the person and work of Jesus Christ. Whoever has faith in Christ is grafted into Jesus' family tree. Matthew makes this point to us with who he includes in this genealogy. Did you realize how messed up it is? Like if I'm, if I'm making a genealogy for Jesus, I am including uh, matriarchs. Right? I'm throwing, if I'm going to include women at all, I'm going to include it, in the first century you didn't put women in genealogies it was, it was bad bad stuff it would be like putting in yours sometimes steals office supplies right uh, it wasn't a, a way to commend yourself uh, but not only does Matthew include women he doesn't include the right women right you would think he would include Rebecca Rachel Leah Sarah instead of the matriarchs of Israel we've got outsiders scandalous ones at that We've got Canaanites, Moabites, and Hittites. Gross. I mean, that's what a lot of these Israelites would be thinking. Ew, why are they here? These are scandalous women of ill repute. I mean, you all, do you know the stories of Tamar and Rahab and Ruth and of Bathsheba? Tamar was obliged to act in faith in order to get Judah to fulfill his role to her in providing her with an heir, with a son. And so she dressed herself like a prostitute and played the role of a hooker so that she could get pregnant with Jesus' great-great-great-great-great-great-grandfather. Rahab was a prostitute in Jericho who hid Israelite spies from the enemy. Ruth was a Moabite who had nothing, lost her husband. And when her mother-in-law told her to go home, go back to her people, she said, no, your people will be my people. Your God will be my God. All right, so far, so good. But then, if you keep reading in Ruth, when she finds Boaz, she figures out, all right, there's this feast. I want him to marry me. He's a kinsman redeemer. And so what I'm going to do is go there in the middle of the night and lay down next to him in the middle of the night after he's been celebrating. And uh, I will uncover his feet, whatever that means. You guys can research that that later it's a little dicey scandalous and then of course you have bathsheba who commits adultery with david matthew has made some odd decisions here not just by including scandalous women but by including evil men king ahaz ignored isaiah's counsel and brought judah under the destruction of the assyrians He sacrificed his children to false gods. Manasseh is described as one of the most wicked kings in the history of Judah. He built false worship sites, practiced sorcery, and participated in child sacrifice. Maybe my favorite name on the list is Jehoram. He's in verse 9. And in 2 Chronicles 2120, one of my favorite passages of Scripture here, uh, the, the chronicler says of him, quote, He died to no one's regret. I mean, how would you like that on your tombstone? (laughs) Died to no one's regret. These are bad dudes. And even King David is recognized as an evil man. What's it say? David was father of Solomon by the wife of Uriah. Matthew could have just said Bathsheba, But he says the wife of Uriah to bring our attention to David's actions. His abuse of authority in both taking Bathsheba to himself initially and then upon discovering her pregnancy, arranging for the murder of her husband. Matthew's bringing out the fact that that David, though held up as an example of what it means to follow God with one's whole heart, was also an adulterer and a murderer. These are scandalous women and evil men. Why are they here? Three reasons. To make clear that Jesus is king, not just of Israel, but of all nations. The inclusion of these Gentile women show us that God has always planned and always included the nations in Christ. He's always sought To save a people from every tongue, tribe, and nation unto Himself. They're included to show us that Jesus is the King of kings and the Lord of lords. But why these scandalous women and evil men too? To show us that Jesus is born to save a sinful people from their sins. The family of God is made up of all who come to Jesus in faith and submit to him as king. There is mercy and forgiveness for all kinds of sinners, from scandalous women to evil men. Matthew's genealogy includes outcasts, adulterers, and foreigners, because the family that Jesus comes from shows us the family that he has come for. Sinners like you and I. Jesus did not come from perfect people, for perfect people. Jesus came to save a sinful people in rebellion against him. He came to save his enemies by his grace and his mercy. Jesus genealogical resume shows us that God loves sinners, even the worst kind. And the resume has quite a cast of characters. In it we see that God loves immoral prostitutes like Rahab. God saves Rahab's. God loves adulterers like Bathsheba. God saves Bathshebas. God saves sinful people like Rahab. God saves Rahabs. God saves kings like David who do evil. God saves Davids. God saves persecutors of the church. Like Paul, God saves Paul. God loves wicked sinners, His enemies, people like you and me in rebellion against Him. And God saves people like you and me. By His Holy Spirit, He creates new life in us, calling us to Himself. And we turn from our sins and we trust in Christ. And He says... I am yours and you are mine. Friends, none of us in this room, no one in the whole world is too far gone for the grace of God. Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners. That's what Christmas is about. Christmas is about the crucifixion and the resurrection. And the restoration of all things. Brothers and sisters, the message of Christianity is not the good people are in and the bad people are out. But that everyone is out. And it is only by the grace of God that any of us can be reconciled to God. This is why Christmas is necessary. Because we cannot make ourselves right with God. It drives me crazy when we get so sentimental about Christmas. And we just speak in platitudes that don't mean everything. War is over if you want it. Is it? No! Things that make us feel warm and fuzzy inside without ever thinking about why Christ came. God the Son became what He was not while never ceasing to be what He was so that He could become killable. He came to die. His blood is the only way that any of us can be made right with God. It is turning from our sin and trusting in Christ. That is the only thing that is going to allow us to live up to what we were made for. We were made for relationship with God. And the only way we can have it is through Christ. That's what Christmas is about. Non-Christian, no one is unsavable. No one is too far gone for the grace of God. Stop waiting. That goes for you too, cultural Christian. Grown up around church, you do the Christmas thing, you do the Easter thing, and not much else as it relates to church. Stop waiting to respond to this message. Jesus is king and he must rule your life. Christmas is a call to repentance. My non-Christian friends, repent of cosplaying as king of your own life and come to the author of life, to the crucified and risen king. The one whose birth we celebrate at Christmas. Come with us, the church. And let's adore him together. Jesus came to show he is the king of nations. Jesus came because he saves his people from their sins. And he came to demonstrate God's sovereignty over history. Matthew's genealogy works all these things together for us to see. God gets his will done. God uses sinners like David and Tamar and Rahab. God uses sinners like us as the means by which he brings about his will in the world. He uses sinners like Mary and Joseph to care for the Messiah. God can use you to carry out his work in the world, church. My hope is that we would be the kind of church that recognizes just how wicked we are. And that we would be the kind of people that know exactly what we've been saved from. That know exactly what it costs for us to be brought into the family of God. That we would be the kind of church that welcomes poorest and vilest of sinners. It welcomes them into our midst and says, there is life and hope for you. You want proof? Look at me. Christ saves sinners. Church, God uses people like you and I to display His glory in the world. He will use you So, share the gospel. This Christmas season, tell others about the cross. Tell others the true story of Christmas. Don't give them images of fat men and flying reindeer. Show them the empty tomb the occupied throne and the King of Kings and the Lord of Lords coming back to earth on horseback with a sword in his hand to put a final end to the darkness that he started overcoming at his birth. Let's pray. Father, do not let us overestimate the power of sin and underestimate the power of your grace. It is your loving kindness, it is your goodness to us that gives us hope. It was the great love with which you have loved your church that caused you to send Jesus Christ, your only begotten Son. To become one of us, so that he might die for us, so that we might raise up with him. Oh Lord, nothing in fiction is so fantastic as the truth of the incarnation of your Son. We give him praise together this morning. We pray in his name. Amen.